Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast from the Public Policy Forum. We focus on the ripples, waves, and tsunamis radiating from this extraordinary health and economic crisis and what can be done about them. Policy Speaking is hosted by Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of The Globe and Mail. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or head over to ppforum.ca where you can also find PPF's research and writings. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon. I'm Edward Greenspan and welcome to Policy Speaking. COVID-19 is an infectious disease that appears to impact different individuals and different groups of individuals in dissimilar ways. Although scientists have been learning fast, there's so much we don't yet know about this virus. These knowledge gaps can be deadly right now, today, and then again if a second wave hits or the next time a pandemic descends upon us. Why do some people have more severe symptoms than others? And why are some people infected but show no symptoms? Why are some groups hit harder than others? Will vaccines have different impacts? In other words, how does the virus work? How is it evolving? Why do some people go through such different health experiences? And how will this impact treatment and prevention? To some extent, the answers to these questions can be found perhaps in socioeconomic factors or the different health histories of people and what they have experienced. Then there are genetic considerations about which we, perhaps I, I should say I, know little. How do they fit in the mix? In late April, the federal government announced a $40 million program called the Canadian COVID Genomics Network. CanCogen, for those who are into long acronyms. And it's meant to conduct genetic research on 10,000 infected patients and 150,000 viral samples to help identify those who are most vulnerable and help us understand community transmission patterns. This is challenging stuff, and therefore I'm happy to be joined today by two guests who can help us understand some of these complex questions. Rob Annan is president and CEO of Genome Canada, and just as importantly, a fellow of the Public Policy Forum, where he's led projects for us and convened discussions around research and innovation strategy. Rob has a PhD in biochemistry from McGill University. Bettina Hamlin is the president and CEO of Ontario Genomics. Bettina has more than 15 years of experience in the biotech and international pharmaceutical industry, as well as 10 years of academic experience as a professor in the Faculty of Pharmacy at Université Laval. So good to have you both on Policy Speaking. Welcome. So look, let's start off with a disclosure that uh, you are participating today uh, in a Biology 101 podcast, which is a sort of a bit of an experiment in itself, I guess. And so I think we need to start by reviewing the, uh, the most basic of basics. What is, what are genomics and what do Genome Canada and Ontario Genomics do? What, let's start with you, Rob. Sure, thanks, Ed. So genomics is at its base about DNA. DNA is the molecular stuff of life. It's what uh, makes us human. It's what makes plants plants. It's what, in the end, makes viruses viruses. Genomics really kind of launched with the Human Genome Project 20 years ago an effort to really kind of hone in and understand how our systems work at a molecular level. Since then, it's exploded and expanded into a number of different kind of molecular systems. So now it's not just about DNA, it's about proteins, it's about other small molecules. And increasingly, it's, uh, it's about data. It's about converting biological systems into, in, into the molecular information about how they work, 
how they interact, and ultimately about um, how we can in interface with them. So Genome Canada was created 20 years ago to, in a sense, help lead Canada into the new era of advanced biosciences that was really based on this. We're an independent not-for-profit. We support uh, work in uh, genomics as well as a variety of associated biosciences, including synthetic biology, gene editing, and so on. Work with universities, industry, governments, uh, and we support research in human health as well as a variety of other sectors uh, across the economy, agriculture, energy, natural resources. And we do that by working really, really closely with regional genome centers like Ontario Genomics to build uh, collaborative research projects really focused on bringing applications of genomics on everyday, uh, everyday challenges. Okay, well that takes us to Bettina, Ontario Genomics. Why don't you just tell us how Ontario Genomics fits into the picture and, and then we'll move on to the COVID-19 part of the discussion. Well, thank you very much, Ed. And um, maybe I'd start by saying that the silver lining of what we're living through at the moment is that science and genomics is really the star of it. It's through COVID-19, genomics is really sort of becoming a household name. And really what it is, is as, uh, as Rob elegantly described, it's the instruction manual of all living things. And that gives us, with Genome Canada and Ontario Genomics, the scope of work to deal with human health issues like we do very much now with COVID-19, but also work in forestry and agriculture around food, even bioremediation technologies for mining uh, tailings. So it's a very broad kind of work. Ontario Genomics is um, a provincially based, independent, not-for-profit organization that um, was created at the same time as Genome Canada, along the other genome centers across the country. And we are really benefiting now, 20 years into this, from genomics being at the tipping point. We now see applications across the board, whether it is in human health or in other areas we touched, we see applications. And the, the mindset of uh, Ontario Genomics is very much in how can we apply technologies? How can we get the genomics tests into the hands of people? And how do we do that rapidly and elegantly? Um, and how can Ontario and Canada benefit from the economic impact of that. So our mindset is very much on the economics of it. And to give you an example, we manage uh, currently a portfolio of projects um, uh, to the tune of $350 million. These are all public-private partnerships. We get uh, private partners on board, academics, other partners to accelerate the development of these technologies. Okay, let me just cut in for a second to say you used the word applications a couple of times. And, and clearly one of the applications that governments are looking toward for you, that the health system is, is uh, and the science system is looking, is to help us understand COVID-19. Now there's a an application that I think everybody in the public can understand now and feel uh, the same uh, the same sense of urgency. So just tell us a little bit, Tina, so we'll start with, let's start this one with you. Just what are you looking for? Why is genomics relevant to this particular international health crisis? It is absolutely critical for at least two reasons. Let me start with two. First of all, the virus itself is a genome. It is a piece of what we call RNA, but it's a, G, it's a piece of genome. And right now, the tests that are being applied around the world 
is a genomics-based test. We call it PCR, and that is applied every day to determine whether or not people are affected by the virus. The extension of that and what we are very excited about and um, really proud of uh, Genome Canada's leadership here is we need to understand exactly what that genome looks like. In, in other words, a, a virus A is not exactly the same copy of a virus B, uh, and that helps us trace the virus within the province, within the country, and around the world. That's the second piece. And then the third piece is we need to understand the genome of, of us as individuals. You started out by sort of introducing this notion, some people get very sick, other people don't. We don't know exactly why. We have some notions of comorbidities, et cetera, but we don't know exactly why. And so what we're really looking to is understand the genome of the patient combined with the genome of the virus, and that'll give us a lot of answers. So Rob, when you look back on this, I don't know at what time frame six months from now or two years from now or five years from now, I don't know what your time frame is. I'd be interested in understanding that. I'm sure there's more than one, but what will success look like? What will you have uh, accomplished? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Then there's a few layers to that, right? I mean, and so the, the time scale is different depending on, uh, you know, kind of what stage we're at in terms of the crisis, right? So in the earliest days, of the COVID outbreak, genomics provided us that first sort of glimpse at what this virus was all about, right? We sequenced, when I say we, I mean the collectively, globally, Chinese scientists sequenced the uh, RNA sequence of the virus. And from that, in, from that alone, that, that piece of information, we were able to get a lot of information about how this virus works, how it's transmitted, where there might be targets for intervention. So in the very earliest days, we were able to get quick information. Now, where we're at right now, as, as Bettina just pointed out, is two sides, right? On the one hand, there's diagnostics, so there's testing, and, and genomics is at the heart of that around both uh, current PCR testing and novel techniques being developed. But today and in the near future, genomics is going to play a really important part in the managing of the, the loosening of restrictions, the test and trace element. And, and this gets to an interesting feature about biology, which, of course, is that, you know, the virus, you get the virus, and it makes... Uh, millions of copies of itself inside of you. And in those millions of copies, it will make little mistakes, right? Uh, at a very slow rate, but at enough of a rate that we can actually start to watch how those mistakes propagate around the world. And so part of our project, Tina was saying, is to sequence up to 150,000 samples here in Canada to like look for those little mutations, as we call them, right? Where are those mutations? And what you can do then is you can use those mutations. There is already a, a fascinating database that your listeners should check out called nextstrain.org. You can go on there and basically what is happening is scientists around the world are creating like an evolutionary tree of the various strains, yeah. So just just 150,000 samples. Let's uh, let's uh, let's let's stop. 150,000 samples of what? There's not 150,000 infected people in Canada, right? Yeah, not yet, and hopefully we don't get there. So, but the, we have funding for up to 150,000 samples. So we'll be able to track at least that many people. Okay. Right. So if we don't have that many, then so much the better. Right. But over the course of, as you said, over the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, until we get a vaccine or until we get to a point at which the, uh, the, the virus is no longer circulating, we will want to be able to say, OK, we've had an outbreak in Edmonton. Uh, we can actually take the samples. We can sequence that viral sample. And then we can ask ourselves, is this related to something that was already circulating in Edmonton? Like, is the virus still kind of being passed around here? Or 
is this actually closer to what was happening over in Montreal? Because we can tell from the sequence that the mutations are similar to what was happening in Montreal, and therefore there must be some sort of transmission that's come from the outside. So it provides a lot of information for public health management and so on. So is the sequence, uh, Patina, kind of like a fingerprint? Is it, is it unique and is it different in each individual? It is like a fingerprint, absolutely. It's like, it's like a computer language uses ones and zeros. Uh, a genome uses four letters, but it is sort of a, a following of letters, which is like a fingerprint or instruction manual. And some virus samples will look the same. Many virus samples look slightly different because there are errors in translation. That's uh, what Rob was talking about. We're looking for these mutations. And, and perhaps to put it in the context of an example is uh, the first patient in Canada that uh, was diagnosed with the virus was at Sunnybrook Health Sciences in Toronto. And the, the team there very quickly, because we knew there was something going on in Wuhan, China, very quickly isolated this virus in collaboration with my Master University and University of Toronto speaking to the collaboration aspect. Within six weeks, we had the sequence of the virus. There we could then tell is that virus comes from Wuhan. The patients that were diagnosed consequently in Ontario and then in BC, the first other patients, they were coming from Iran. And we could compare the, the sequence of the virus detected at Sunnybrook hospitals with sequences in Iran. The next patients come from Egypt. And if you recall, in the beginning, we started closing flights or borders because we wanted to prevent the virus from coming in. Now we talk a lot about community transmission. And the reason we can tell that is that we can compare those sequences. And we know that now this long-term care facility has all the same copies of the same virus, and we can tell where it is coming from. But we need to do that at much larger scale because right now, we just do it at a very small scale. So one of the things that mystifies, I think, common folks like myself is that this virus seems to manifest itself in a lot of different ways and in different people. We've had this discussion. We've all uh, learned about asymptomatic uh, transmission. Some people you know, get attacked. Uh, very badly in their uh, in their respiratory systems. Some people have it and have very mild symptoms. I suppose this might be like influenza, which attacks people differently, but it sort of seems that influenza is a little bit in a smaller range of possibilities. That's just, you know, that, I put that out for you to, to respond to or challenge, but is there is there something about uh, this this particular virus that's a little bit more variable than one is accustomed to? Well, it certainly seems to be, I mean, at its base, the thing is that biology is weird, okay? Like biology is weird and it's not always obvious ahead of time what is going on. And, and that's one of the fascinating things that what we're going through right now is that we're, we're gathering data and trying to understand it in real time, right? And so what are meaningful signals? What is noise? You know, we're getting hints of things. Uh, you know, lay people are starting to realize that doing science is actually pretty messy. It's not grade 11 uh, textbooks that we start with. What we start with is some rumors on Twitter and then someone saying, well, that's, that hasn't been peer reviewed. And so we're turning through, we're trying to understand that stuff. There's going to be a couple of ways to tackle that. Certainly, you know, epidemiology is helping a lot. We're doing a lot of sort of frontline uh, physicians are, are figuring out a lot around co comorbidities and so on. But for us at the genomic level, you know, a big part of our project is also looking at, at humans and how our genetic makeup, our varied genetic makeup, informs our reactions to the virus. And it's not going to be everything. 
but it's going to be a part of it. We know that there's a genetic element to this because we see things in families, for instance. But one of the one of the questions we're asking is, okay, well, can we find associations between various genetic features and types of reaction, whether that's more severe or less severe, what have you? And those might well point the way towards interventions when it comes to, say, small molecules and so on. I want to come back in a second to that very to that very point of different in different people, but let me just stick with with where I was going a, a moment ago about the variability and and perhaps the evolution of of the virus itself. Recently, in recent days, we've been hearing more and more about uh, children showing up in hospitals around the world with inflammatory conditions. And previously, I think there was a sense that, well, children are not immune to this, but uh, but they seem to be escaping it, you know, more than others. The danger seemed to be that they're vectors and there would be spreaders as opposed to uh, sufferers. But now something that we don't understand is happening. Is that part of what you were investigating? Bettina? Absolutely. We want to understand the variability. It's very interesting with this virus, and we're getting more and more cases of cohorts that have actually determined how many people are infected with the virus but not getting sick. Um, so there's just recently a, a small isolated vessel from Antarctica and we had a really good glimpse at 60% of the people on this, on this vessel were infected with COVID-19, but 80% of those infected were not sick. And then you get 20% are sick, but most of them are not that sick. So what we want to understand is how can we explain this and how can we actually predict it? The beauty of genomics then is that we can identify these reasons for why we, we make different observations and then we can develop tests around it and, and test right. people beforehand. So we can triage patients as they get into the hospital with respect to treatment. Okay, I don't want you just to understand it and be able to explain it. I want you to mitigate it or prevent it. How possible is that? Yeah, that's uh, obviously that's the reason we're doing all of this, right? It starts with understanding and then hopefully what that leads to in short order in this case is uh, is is directions for intervention, right? So on this question of the, the kids, for instance, there's a research group in Alberta that we're, we're supporting with Genome Alberta that's that's tackling exactly this question. And it, it's indicative because it's actually, a, it's a huge interdisciplinary effort, right? So there's genomics, looking at the genetic makeup of kids and the virus. We have immunologists, you've got virologists, you've got other in, uh, experts in infectious disease. And the idea is if you can actually identify, say at the genetic level, if you can identify why it is that some kids are having this, right? And it turns out that there are genes involved that seem to point towards worse outcomes. In some cases, we already have inhibitors or we have other drugs that have been developed for other reasons, right? That for other sorts of uh, treatments that might be able to be used when we know that there's a link here because of a genetic, a genetic indicator, whether that's the same pathway for some other disease or whatever, it starts to basically, un it gives us clues as to what's happening at the biological level, so then we can intervene. You started to go somewhere a couple of minutes ago, Rob, that I, I possibly got in the way of your explanation. So let's go back to, uh, because it got me wondering, is the virus different in different people? What, what is the key variable of that? Is it because of our individual genetic pattern or is it uh, the virus itself? How much is supply side and how much is demand side, if you will? Yeah, so I defer to any virologists who want to call into the whatever the, the talk line here with more specific details. But my understanding is that there are some what looks like maybe strains of the virus emerging, but it doesn't 
at this point seem to me that those are correlated with different severity of symptoms and so on. When we talk about tracking mutations and different different uh, sort of uh, RNA sequences involved with the virus, most of those mutations are what we call silent. They're, they, they don't actually affect or impact the severity of the virus, how it works. And in fact, that's one of the fascinating things that about again, about genomics, is that when you, when you map out where all these mutations are happening, you can see that there are hot spots, but there are also cold spots where there just are no mutations. And what those tell you is that if there's a mutation in that spot, the virus isn't able to reproduce inside of you for some reason, or it's not infectious, or it, there's an evolutionary pressure in the same way that you get natural selection of, of other animals or whatever, you get natural selection of the virus. And that tells us that that part is really, really important. And maybe we can use that as a target or intervention for, for therapeutics. I'm fascinated by that idea of cold spots. So is a cold spot a geographic spot, a spot in your body? What is a cold spot? Well, on the, on the genome of the virus, right? So the virus is literally like a stretch of RNA, of nucleic acid, wrapped in some protein. It's like a, a spiky ball. We've all seen the pictures now. But that's all it is. Inside, if you stretch it out, that line of RNA, you could read it uh, sequentially. And so those spots are going to be in that sequence of letters that represent the instructions for making the proteins that then create more viruses. Okay, Patina, a lot of people in the world are waiting for vaccine. Will the fact that there's these variabilities and, it, and, and the virus affects people in different ways mean that people are, might need different vaccines and we might have to match vaccines? Well, hope is that that is not the case. There are hints or, or signs so far seems to be showing that the virus does not mutate at a tremendous rate. It mutates much less than, say, the influenza virus and other viruses. So the hope is that we can uh, develop a vaccine that works for everyone. However, that needs to be determined. But I think, you know, there's about eight uh, mutations that seem to stick around. There are lots of mutations that sort of happen, like error in translation and then disappear. So that gives us some hints that one uh, vaccine might work. But uh, time will show. I mean, I think there's just so much going on on the vaccine side of thing. And uh, I think where that work really started is by understanding and sequencing the virus. And that's really critical. Um, so the hope is definitely to have a single vaccine that works for everyone. I gotta say that I've been very pleasantly surprised that there's so many people who are working on this, who've turned their work toward this, or already have experimentation and research investigations that seem to touch on this, whether they're in Halifax or Saskatoon or Toronto or Edmonton or, or British Columbia. It, it, it's striking. And of course, they're plugged into international networks as well. What role do you guys play in, in helping create this, uh, I'm going to call it, a, I guess, a genome cluster? Yeah, that's a good question. Our role is really, in this effort here, is to work as much as we can to be facilitators. As, as you point out, 
the commitment and the energy that the scientific community has brought to bear on this question is phenomenal. And the network, the CANCAGEN, that was funded by the federal government, was really a grassroots effort. This was scientists themselves saying, we need to be doing this. This was clinicians who were saying, you know what would really help us is, is if we got more information here, public health agencies saying we need that kind of information. So it was really starting at the grassroots. We have worked, um, and I say we by Genome Canada, Ontario Genomics, the other centers, to help facilitate the conversations necessary across, say, geographical regions, certainly to help facilitate conversations and connections with initiatives internationally. There are similar initiatives to what we're doing underway in a number of countries around the world, most notably in the UK and the US. And so helping connect those pieces, uh, quite frankly, providing the funding to um, actually do a lot of the work and making sure that some parts that aren't maybe as uh, connected in as other parts get into that national conversation. So our role in this one has really been to act as facilitators and to help, uh, you know, in a sense, channel that energy in, in a common direction. So by the same token, at the same time, and Bettina, you're, you're in a sense representing an entity that's in Ontario, obviously with connections uh, nationally and globally. Fathers of Confederation and their wisdom decided to make healthcare a provincial jurisdiction. And indeed, we seem to have, I think, 14 jurisdictions, essentially, uh, 10 provinces, three territories, and federal government, of course, has jurisdiction in a number of places, including the military, for providing healthcare. Mm. Is this an inhibitor to the quick movement of information? And, and, and particularly, you need, I think, scale to be DNA investigators. You need a lot of examples. So is this an inhibitor in any way? You know, this is, this is a great question, Ed. And I think uh, this is where Genome Canada and Ontario Genomics and the other genome centers, we come together in this enterprise where we are really aligning the priorities in the provinces with the federal government. So we're sort of a, a group of organizations that are really bringing those pieces together. And we're quite unique in that way. And I think the healthcare example is a great example of uh, how useful a model like this is. Because when you look at CancoGen, for a national work, a network to really be able to come together efficiently, provinces need to be ready. And Ontario, for example, we're the largest province. We have the second largest outbreak. And so what we did at Ontario Genomics is, is we very quickly mobilized the community in Ontario. We created OncoV Genomics Coalition. This is the Ontario COVID-19 Genomics Coalition that brings together Public Health Ontario, more than 30 hospitals around the province, our major sequencing platform that we have together with Genome Canada funded for 20 years with the data powerhouses like the Vector Institute and some industry. And, and we brought this group together to really efficiently support testing um, and uh, support Public Health Ontario really gain capacity. So as a provincial organization, we can do that and, and we facilitate that interaction and that then really feeds into the national network. A big piece of the, of the dialogue is around data and data sharing. Actually, I'm from Europe and I've, I've seen some European countries who have wrapped their head around that. It seems very difficult in Canada to do, but again, I think with uh, initiatives like OncoV Genomics Coalition and CancoGen nationally and genomics that's driving all this data, 
I think we will we, we have a much better chance of getting there because if we can't share the data and it cannot be accessible across the country, we cannot trace the virus between BC and Montreal back to Toronto, and we certainly can't trace it uh, around the world. Rob, let's take if you could have one or two things happen that would help gather data and make data available so that you could discover more quickly what's going on, what would those things be? But Bettina, you know, so Bettina outlined, I think, a, a nice way how, how the system is working here. And but from a policy perspective, COVID is a little bit funny, right? So some other time we can do like a three-hour podcast about the challenges that the federated model of healthcare poses to doing really good national work in the country. But for COVID, what's fascinating about it is that it's both super regional in terms of the outbreaks, right? What we're seeing is not just not just here in Canada, but around the world, right? You've got like uh, New York City, right? You've got like Northern Italy, you've got Wuhan, you've got, so these things are happening very regionally. Even here in Canada, what we're seeing are outbreaks in the greater Toronto area, Montreal. On the one hand, it's actually pretty regional. Uh, the difference is what we're seeing in say the prairies versus what we're seeing in central Canada is pretty stark. But at the, at the same token, the effort to try to address this has to be global. So it's not a, this isn't a Canada problem, this is a global problem. In some ways, and this is probably true in lots of areas in Canada, it's easier to work internationally than it is across provincial boundaries sometimes. And so when it comes to, say, for instance, all the data we're generating around the viruses, there are international databases that Canadian scientists are contributing to, and so are scientists from all over the world. And then we are using that common, that common resource to drive the research and drug developments happening around the world. So there's no doubt that data sharing across provincial boundaries when it comes to uh, personal health data, precision medicine and the implementation and use of big data sets is a real problem in Canada, right? That lots of people are working hard to address, including us. But on the COVID thing, actually, it's, it's less of a problem right now than, than it might be, I would say. Okay, well, I guess there's a minor relative encouragement it being less of a problem than it might otherwise be. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy for that. But I'm struck, you know, in a country where we talk economically about interprovincial trade barriers and things of this sort, that, that this would be an inhibitor at all. I want to ask about a, another potential inhibitor, and perhaps it's not, not in any way, but there's a lot of discussion going on about, about privacy now and whether people would be willing to surrender their privacy or compromise their privacy, perhaps, in tracking is is privacy an issue for the kind of work that you're trying to do? Privacy is, is an issue as soon as um, you get into data that can identify an individual. So this is where Rob was talking about how the virus is not going to be the problem because the virus, the virus that is retrieved from a patient cannot be associated back to the patient. So therefore, sharing that genomic sequence is easy. As soon as we get into the DNA of, of a patient or an individual, that is basically your personal, very personal signature. And then we get into privacy issues, and then it gets linked to your clinical data via your personal health card number. So privacy is always an issue. But that is where so many expert groups um, and the Glo Global Alliance uh, for Genomic uh, data, Rob, we might have to come back with the right name for this organization, the Global Alliance, uh, provides standards uh, to properly share data to protect privacy going forward. I'm going to just dig deeper into this with a question that uh, perhaps uh, might be controversial in and of itself. But I wonder, as I see people put up their DNA samples online and sites and try to find you know, distant relatives or where they come from originally, that they don't seem 
as fixated on privacy. And, and I'm wondering if to some extent what we have is uh, perhaps an official privacy problem rather than an individual citizen privacy problem. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a really fair question. And, you know, I would say that as, uh, you know, as organizations, we're going to err on the side of caution there. We're not going to presume that everyone's just cool with us uh, releasing the most intimate information about them, right? They're the actual DNA. But, you know, pe people vote with their pocketbooks or whatever, and they're sending off samples to 23andMe or Ancestry.com and, and basically sending their DNA out the door that way. But there's also there's a question of, you know, kind of informed consent. You know, how much do people recognize or realize how that data is going to be used, could be used? And I'm not, and I don't mean to suggest uh, deep and nefarious and secret uh, motives on behalf of anybody here. We do see the same sort of thing happening with uh, other types of data on, say, Facebook or Amazon and so on. And it's all well and fine until you get like Cambridge Analytica type scandals and people say, well, we didn't expect our data to be kind of hacked or used that way and so on. It's really tricky to make assumptions about how people will feel about things down the road, uh, which is why we have, as Bettina mentioned, you know, um, central to genomics right from the very beginning has been research into ethics, privacy, data governance, and so on. And that's, that's certainly true for all the projects that are going on right now. All right. Let's go to the international collaboration that uh, that you you referred to uh, a few moments ago, and clearly clearly there's a lot of that, and I guess to me it seems like it can only be a, a net good and perhaps even an absolute good. Nonetheless, we're living in a time where we're seeing greater decoupling between China and the United States, you know, most particularly, and uh, and a suspicion and a finger pointing about the origins of, of the virus, about an early lack of transparency. There's a lot of tension around this. At the same time, we have G7 science and technology ministers publishing declarations on collaboration and uh, cooperation. We have G20 doing the same sort of thing. So how is this playing out in the real world how have the how do geopolitics insinuate themselves into uh, into the world and what you're trying to accomplish let me say a couple of things to open the door at least go ahead um because i can talk about so when it comes to the um the the covid 19 related work and, and in particular cancogen this this national network we have very close and, and even formal ties with the projects that are underway in both the UK and the US. Representatives of those projects are sitting on a steering committee that is helping actually direct the, the Canadian project by sharing uh, experiences, best practices, establishing linkages. So that, that's the way science works, right? You know, there's no point in everybody reinventing the wheel. If, if you know how to do something, you share it so that we can make progress together more rapidly. Beyond that, at its core, right from the beginning, there was a sense that you know, there would be shared public resources when it comes to uh, basic data around the virus and uh, efforts underway to share depersonalized data around the human genetic response. So, and that, that's baked right into the history of genomics. The Human Genome Project was an international effort involving countries from around the world tackling a massive challenge. And that's what this is today, a massive challenge. So. So that's all, that's all there, right? Um, that's all happening. The virus doesn't care about uh, decoupling and international borders or whatever. It's, it's going to uh, move around the world regardless of who's in power in the White House or wherever else. So 
But, but if, the, if the virus doesn't care, why do we have, why are we cooperating more heavily, as you say, with the United States and the United Kingdom? Why is there an Anglosphere on research and, a, and an indifference to the, uh, by the virus? Yeah, I don't know that I would say that there's an Anglosphere around the research. There's just, uh, I would say, probably tighter links to those projects based on, uh, you know, historic reasons and so on. But we are also, we're contributing to the same database that's, that, that is having data deposited by China, by uh, Iran, by other countries. And so there is an international co cooperation at some level. I, I don't mean to just dismiss away international geopolitics when it comes to things like vaccine development, therapeutic development, what vaccine, uh, you know, what vaccine access will look like one day. Those things are very, are certainly very real. But at the level of the basic uh, data around um, kind of viral transmission and, and so on, uh, I think that this is not a whole lot different than we've seen in other international initiatives. And if I, if I can add, I mean, I think with the silver lining of COVID-19 is we see unprecedented collaboration. I mean, certainly in the scientific level, the collaboration that's happening in, and also in the industry, the pharmaceutical industry, they're all working together towards a vaccine. It's not only that a virus doesn't care about borders, but we also know that this is a tragedy. This is, this is an issue we've never dealt with before. And there's not one single country that can find the solution to this. And I think you know, vaccine development, um, clinical research is a prime example. Yesterday, I looked at clinicaltrials.org. There's over 1,700 clinical trials ongoing. They are ongoing around the world because we need to capture all the different uh, ethnicities, etc. The world is, is a much smaller place today than it was uh, 50 years ago when, or 30 years ago when we started dealing with HIV and, and polio and things like that. So I, I, the other thing I would say is that Yes, there is more talk in many countries about supply chains and things like that. I would like to put that in a context of economic recovery for a country like Canada and linking it back to genomics, where there is some incredible opportunities for us to leverage genomics, uh, for example, to utilize this tremendous biomass we have in Canada, which is basically our trees, and can do all kinds of uh, things with biomass uh, to produce uh, in a much more sustainable way, plastics, materials, face masks, all kinds of things. I think this is a great opportunity for Canada and other countries to be innovative, but it doesn't take away from the need to, to work around the globe. And I think what we have started in terms of international trade cannot be stopped. Well, it seems to me in some way there's two tensions operating here. One tension is is this kind of uh, special tension that has to do with the, uh, the decoupling I referred to in China, and it's exacerbated in Canada, obviously, because of uh, the detention of, of the two Canadians in uh, in China and all of, uh, all of the fallout from that. Um, so that's one tension. I wonder if that plays out for scientists, if, if, if that's uh, in any way something that makes it difficult in public opinion terms or otherwise for them to be proceeding with joint trials with, trials with China, this sort of thing. And then the other tension, I think, is what you talk about, a globalization versus a national sovereignty a kind of tension that's happening. And Rob, uh, I see, testified before House of the Commons Committee recently and spoke about the opportunity here to develop a, an industrial strategy with an eye toward ensuring greater national self-sufficiency and made in canon solutions. I'm sure that wasn't an anti-international message, but but nonetheless, it is uh, it is uh, an interesting uh, 
just to, as you were saying, between an interesting industrial strategy uh, message. So Rob, maybe maybe each of you could tackle one of those tensions. Uh, why don't you talk about the national sovereignty, you know, globalization one a bit, Rob, and maybe Bettina, you could t- uh, tell us if, uh, if researchers are feeling a bit of a chill in dealing with China. Yeah, sure, Ed. Um, you know, I think it's the world. The world will be changed, obviously, coming out of this. I mean, there was already a lot of tensions uh, geopolitically around globalization and the rise of China, and kind of rethinking kind of the economic model that has driven a lot of our own industrial policy over the last couple of decades. And uh, here, you know, a quick shout out to the Public Policy Forum for the work that you've done with uh, Sean Spear and Robert Aslan on uh, the new North Star, which I know, which I think is actually right kind of bang on. Um, this idea that um, Canada is uh, a you know, medium-sized country, medium-sized economy, uh, we're buffeted a little, especially right now, between China and the U.S. And it's clear that we're going to need to stay connected, but at the same time, uh, be thinking about how we manage our own industrial strategy internally and think about, for instance, this idea of like a challenge-based uh, approach to economic recovery, right? So uh, when we think about what are the advantages we have in Canada, what, what can we leverage here, both nationally and internationally, it's clear that uh, natural resources and agriculture are massive advantages we have. Uh, and if you combine those with the really um, advanced technologies we have in biotech in particular, you know, like what we do at Genome Canada, but also in, in, in informatics and AI, we can actually you know, develop or, or sort of d- drive our reemergence from this economic challenge uh, by making sure that our, our industrial sectors are really global leaders, but also addressing many of our own challenges here internally. So here I'm thinking about how do we do agriculture in an era of climate change, right? And that's going to involve a lot of genetics and genomics. And how do we do clean energy? How do we make take advantage of the energy advantages we already have, but also introduce new energy sources and clean up those existing ones with technologies and so on. So I think that we here need to be thinking about how to merge technology and talent into our traditional sectors as part of our regrowth strategy and to do that in a, in a, in a, in a global context where we're going to be, need to take a lot more interest in our own homegrown economic uh, situation rather than maybe having more of an export view. Okay, and Bettina, I sort of uh, left a, a tough one on the table for you there, which I uh, I apologize for, but nonetheless, uh, canola growers have been dragged into into uh, geopolitical disputes. Uh, beef farmers have been dragged into into this. Are, are scientists feeling themselves at this moment of, of great cooperation and collaboration in some way drawn into this uh, vortex? Look, I think it's a it's a very important question, and and I would encourage uh, scientists uh, to reach to out, out to you directly. What I would say, Ed, is science is a very collaborative. Under- it's how we accelerate uh, progress, and and collaborations are built on trust. I would say that on the scientific level, you know, China and Canada have certainly done a lot to exchange. I I don't have the percentage of Chinese students in in Canada, but I know that currently our universities are having a reality check with lots of Chinese students staying away because of COVID-19, of course, and that has a major economic impact. But what that speaks to is that there is really a great effort to train Chinese students in Canada and in the U.S. And there's also lots of efforts to actually attract 
the Chinese students back and with them whole uh, advisory of North American and European professors that set up laboratories in China. And so I, I think that is perhaps one could say, is, is that a bubble? I don't know. But I think scientists are driven by scientific progress and that's driven by collaboration and trust. I think that's a good thing. Right. I think you handled yourself very well. And I was going to say that I, I, I possibly feel a little bit guilty. And maybe this is just everybody trying to move themselves where they feel confident. We started with biology and genomics, and then I dragged you into geopolitics. Uh, I'm maybe on the same level with you, uh, unlike uh, unlike the other part. Do you think these are, these are real issues? Because you know, it's got to be a full-on effort now, as you were saying at the beginning, to use all our tools and all our knowledge and acquire knowledge and the sort of project that you're that you're very deeply involved to to gather data and sequence and see how how this virus evolves and how this virus lands on people in different ways. If we're going to uh, if we're going to have you know the right kinds of treatments and the right kinds of management of it and and minimize the harm so i, I want to thank you for not just the time you spent with us talking about the study on policy speaking but uh, more importantly the time that you're spending looking for solutions and being uh, investigators uh, uh, in ways that we couldn't have imagined 30 years ago so thank you both for that and thank you both for being with us today it's been a, it's been a great pleasure ed thanks a lot thank you very much ed it was great to talk to you. Lovely for me to talk to you. And uh, that is uh, a wrap on this edition of our podcast. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum and our distribution partner, National Newswatch. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know on Twitter at ppformca. Uh, please uh, visit our website to look at any of our other research for the Public Policy Forum. And of course, uh, this podcast and uh, previous episodes of Policy Speaking can be found wherever it is you find your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Ed Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking.